this morning, two different people came up to me after church and shared with me, was reading this passage that made them become a Christian. So how amazing is that? That's how wonderful this passage of scripture is. So uh, I'm going to pray that I do it justice. Let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken so clearly in your word and in particular uh, that you have given us the answer to our problems. You have sent your son Jesus to be our saviour. So we pray that as we read about that wonderful salvation and think about it together now that we will be gripped by just how amazing what you have done for us actually is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many, many years ago, uh, I went canyoning in the Blue Mountains. It's not something I've ever done again, I can tell you. But uh, we were near Mount Wilson, if you know the Blue Mountains. And we had to hike in with a backpack uh, and carry a lilo in our backpack, not blown up yet. Uh, and then you blow it up and then you jump in this river and canyon down. Uh, and it was pretty amazing. Uh, it was great fun. I remember no one told me to bring a wetsuit. Uh, and so I was in shorts and a t-shirt, and so I basically froze afterwards. Uh, but anyway, at one point, I slipped over, because you had to scramble between different parts of the river at various points and carry your lilo and then jump back on it. And I, I slipped over and fell on my back, and I went underneath the water. Uh, and it was only a few inches deep, but my backpack got stuck in some rocks under the water, and I was lying there on my back, and the water was totally clear, and I could see air... But I couldn't get to it. So I was just lying there on my back and only about two inches away, but I could not move because my backpack was stuck in this crevice on the bottom of the rocks. And I was actually drowning in like a foot of water, totally unable to help myself. Uh, you know when they talk about your whole life flashing before your eyes? It, it actually happens. I, I was there thinking, well, this is it. Wow, that's what it was like. Thankfully, one of my friends turned around and didn't think it was... All the others just thought it was funny that I was flailing around in the water. This other friend realised there was something going on here and actually grabbed me by the front of my shirt and pulled me up and and out of the water and I could breathe again. He still jokes about saving my life. It it wasn't a joke. You actually did save my life. That's what it was like. Uh, But it's a horrible feeling, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been totally helpless like that when you do nothing to save yourself you've ever been caught in a rip uh, at the beach uh, you know what I'm talking about where you're just going and you suddenly realize I can't touch the ground and I can't get out of this and I can't move and you are totally helpless you can't save yourself it's absolutely horrible that is how we are meant to be feeling at this point we've got to in the book of Romans after looking at these first three chapters over the last three weeks it's been hard going these first three chapters hasn't it Who else has found it hard going here at church and in gospel teams going through? Because the Apostle Paul has really only had one goal. And the goal is to show us how helpless we are before God. That's been his goal. He's been convincing us of the reality of our sin and the reality of God's wrath. It's not a very nice topic, but the the reality of our sin and the reality of God's righteous judgment of our sin. Uh, the point he's been making is he's been trying to convince us it doesn't matter how moral you think you are it doesn't matter if you think you're better than other people doesn't matter if you think you're more religious he says it doesn't matter there is no one righteous not even one remember we got to that line last week there is no one righteous not even one he says there is no one who seeks God we have all sinned and we all deserve God's righteous wrath or anger and judgment See, you are meant to feel hopeless by this point we've got to. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. We're meant to feel hopeless because we are helpless. We deserve God's judgment. We can do nothing. 
to, to, to save ourselves, uh, to avoid God's wrath, we'd need to be righteous. But Paul says there's no one righteous, not even one. So there is no hope. Then we come to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Please have your Bibles open. This is absolute God. Put up your hand if you didn't get a Bible before. Someone will get one to you. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Starts with possibly the two greatest words in the Bible. Look there. It says, but now. I remember hearing Brendan do a talk, must have been a youth talk, and he said this is the biggest but in the Bible, which got him a few laughs at youth group, but, but he's absolutely right. That, that word is so important, but now, those two words mean something has changed. There, there is a reason that in, in less politically correct times, history was always understood to hinge on the coming of Jesus. There's a reason that there was BC before Christ and AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. It's because at that moment, everything changed. History hinges on the coming of Jesus. But now there is hope. Not because of us. Remember, we're helpless. We haven't done anything. But now, in Jesus, God has done something. Like the lifeguard who comes and grabs you out of the water. God has entered history and acted to save us. Which is what makes this, as I say, in my view, the greatest passage in all of Scripture. I know I'm given to saying whatever passage I'm preaching on is wonderful, but this is the greatest passage. Come with me from verse 21. But now, apart from the law, that's important, because remember, you, you can't earn your way, you can't obey enough of the law to be righteous. So it's apart from the law, the law doesn't help. Apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, that is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. So we cannot be righteous, but now God gives us the gift of righteousness. God declares us to be righteous. He declares us innocent of sin. He declares us to be clean in his sight. Not because we are not because of what we do. As I said, it's apart from the law. The law couldn't solve our problem. It just showed us our sin now we don't earn God's righteousness, we just receive it as a gift. And we do that how? Well, he says it over and over again in those couple of verses, doesn't he? How do we receive it? Through faith in Christ. It is to all who believe. There are no catches. This gift is available to anyone. Just as everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, well, in the same way, the gift of God's righteousness is available to anyone and everyone if we will just turn and trust in Jesus. Now, that truth is the greatest news that has ever been told. It's the truth we call justification by faith. Justification is one of those big Bible words. Remember back when we started Romans all those weeks ago, I said there's some big words you've got to know and understand, write them down, remember them. Well, this is big word number one, justification. To be justified is to be declared righteous. To be declared innocent by God. The way to remember it, just as if we never sinned. That's how God looks at us if we are justified. And God offers that to everyone if we will just receive his gift by faith. That is the greatest truth you can ever come to know. What is the only right response to hearing that news? What is the only right response to knowing that truth? The only right response is to trust in Jesus. The only right response is to trust in Jesus and then to praise God. Isn't that right? But it actually leaves a really important question. How can God do this? 
How can God justify a sinner like me? How can God call me innocent when I'm still a sinner? I won't go through my day today, but I can tell you I've sinned today. How can God look at me and say, I haven't sinned when I have? That, that, that's, have you ever thought about that? It's great that God forgives us. It's great that God declares us to be innocent, but how can he do that and still be righteous himself? I'll see what I mean by this being a problem. We hate it when judges let guilty criminals off with light sentences, don't we? What happens in Australia when there's been a murderer or something like that and then it comes out of the news that the judge says, I've given him four years and two years if he's well behaved. What do Australians do when we hear that news? We ring 2GB, we ring AM radio, we write letters to the paper, we say, what is wrong with these judges? They're out, out of step. Justice is, is what we need. What's wrong with the legal system? Punishment has to fit the crime. That is what every Australian says. Guilty criminals should be punished. Well, we are guilty before God. That's the reality. We've sinned. We've hurt other people. Most of all, though, we've, we've hurt God himself. And God says the wages of sin is death. And so if God just lets us off, then isn't God just like one of those weak judges who, who, who we get angry at? If we are sinners who deserve his wrath, how can he dare just declare us innocent? That, that's not fair. I mean, it's great that he does for our sake, but doesn't that make God corrupt? Doesn't that make God a liar, given he said, I have to judge sin? In fact, it makes him unrighteous because he's not keeping his word. Let me tell you, the Jews of Jesus' time felt this really, really keenly. This was one of their main critiques of the Apostle Paul, their main things they were angry about at the, the first Christians. They said, how can I be totally free it can't be, how can God just forgive? How can he just declare us righteous? Especially those Gentiles who haven't even bothered obeying God's law. It's not right. Sadly, we in our modern world, we often don't feel this tension. And it's not because we're more godly than the people back then. No, it's because we don't treat sin very seriously. You see, people today often think God should just be a big cuddly teddy bear who, who sits in the corner. And when you're in need, he should respond to whatever you ask him to do. Or a nice old man, God's just a nice old man and he should forgive everyone because that's what God does. Except the really bad people who are worse than me, I want him to judge them. But if we have understood Romans 1 to 3, and there is a reason I made us labour over that three weeks here at church and in our gospel teams on a Wednesday night. There is a method to my madness. There's a reason we laboured over it. It's because if you have really understood Romans 1 to 3, then we should feel this conundrum really keenly. God is the righteous judge. God is to be feared. He's not a cuddly teddy bear. So how can God declare us to be innocent and yet still keep his word and be righteous himself? How can justice and forgiveness both happen? Well, the answer is in the cross of Christ. Because you see, it's in the cross of Christ that is where God's mercy and his justice are both able to happen. And that's what verses 24 to 26 are about. Come with me. Let's look at them. Verse 24 says, they, that is all people who believe in Jesus. I hope that's you. So I'm going to say you. You are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, as I said before, I'm sorry if you don't like big words, but to grasp how wonderful God is, you need to know and understand these big words that end in shun. We used to have a Colin Buchanan song we played for our kids when they were little. Big words that end in shun. So we've seen justification already. That's to be declared righteous, to be declared innocent. Here's another one, redemption. 
comes from the world of slavery. In the ancient world, slaves made up the majority of the population. Slavery was everywhere. And if you were a slave, you were owned by your master. And the only way you could be set free, the only way you could become a free person was if you or someone else paid the price to redeem you. They paid the ransom, if you like. Well, because of our sin, we've given up our freedom. We're held as slaves by sin and, and the certainty of God's judgment. But God has paid the ransom price to redeem us, to set us free. And he explains how in verse 25. Look with me. It says, God presented him, that is Jesus, as a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, you're probably thinking, Fairding and Phil, enough of the big words that end in Shun already. Uh, and I think you could go your whole life without using the word propitiation. You've got an assignment for this week. You've got to use the word propitiation in a sentence not related to church. Okay? That's your job. So listen to what it means. Uh, but bear with me. This is such an important concept to grasp. You might have a translation that says sacrifice of atonement. It's another way of saying the same thing, but propitiation is the best word for it. Just as an aside on this, please don't be one of those Christians who isn't willing to use their brain to, to understand key concepts. I get really sad when Christians say to me as if they're proud of it, as if it's somehow pious to not know very much uh, about their Lord, to have a simple faith. If we love God's word, if we love God, we want to grapple with these ideas. So understand this, propitiation. We have to throw ourselves back into a world that's so foreign to us, uh, but was very familiar to the people living 2,000 years ago. You see, Back in the ancient world, and in fact in just about every culture the world has ever known before the gospel and Christianity got to it, people understood that the gods or God, however they perceived him to be, was angry with humanity and he needed to be propitiated or they needed to be propitiated. To propitiate an angry person means to do something to turn aside their anger, to pay the price so they're not angry with you anymore. And so in the ancient world, before you went on a sea journey, well, you killed a goat and you offered it to the God of the sea, just to turn aside his anger. If you went on a land journey, you wherever you were going through, wherever you thought the gods were there, you made a sacrifice. Sometimes they made human sacrifices. The world was a horrible place before the gospel came. See, you would have made a propitiation to someone at some point. When you upset someone, we often try and make it right, don't we? We often try and do something to fix it. We go and apologise, but we also take a gift uh, and we call it a peace offering. That is a propitiation. I'm really sorry for what I said. I'm really sorry for what I did. Please accept this as a sign of how, how sorry I am and so that you won't be angry with me anymore. It's like the husband who's forgotten the wedding anniversary and the next day he takes home a bunch of flowers. He is propitiating his wife's anger. At that point, that's what he's doing. So when you're on the train next, you see a man with a bunch of flowers, say to him, I hope those flowers are a propitiation for your wife. Maybe not, but you get the point. Well, how much more is this true of the true and living God? As we've seen in Romans 1 to 3, the true and living God is rightfully angry with us, with me, with you, with all of humanity. His anger needs to be dealt with. Now, God prepared the way for us to understand this in the Old Testament. This is, why, this is why we have the law in the Old Testament. This is how it prepares the way for Jesus because that whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, you read about it in Exodus and, and Leviticus, when they slaughtered a calf or a goat and they threw all the blood around everywhere, it makes us feel really squeamish. What was it about? 
Why did they have to do that? Well, it was a sacrifice of propitiation. God was rightly angry at their sin. His anger needed to be turned away. Blood needed to be spilt. The price had to be paid. God had said the wages of sin is death. That was the purpose. But the blood of a goat or a bull couldn't couldn't pay the price for our sin. That's why they had to keep doing it week in, week out, year in, year out. The Old Testament sacrifices were only ever pointing forward to a greater sacrifice. And here is the wonder of it. No gift or sacrifice we could ever offer could pay for our sin. So God did it for us. Just think about this. Someone has hurt you and then you say, I'm going to pay the price for my anger on behalf of you. We would never do that, would we? But that's what God does for us. And so the point here is Jesus is that greater sacrifice. Jesus was willing to be that sacrifice for you and for me. When he was nailed to the cross and died, he was the propitiation to turn aside God's wrath. He took the true and fair penalty for sin, the wrath of God, he took it upon himself. Justice needed to be done. Because God is righteous, he couldn't let sin go on unpunished. But instead of laying it on us, who deserved it, God himself sent the sacrifice so that he could forgive us but at the same time maintain his own justice and righteousness. That's the point in verses 25 and 26. Come with me to verses 25 and 26. If you were reading them just sort of off the cuff before, they might have made sense, but hopefully they do now. It says, God presented him, Jesus, as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. See, we think, would he mean demonstrate his love? But no, he's demonstrating his righteousness. He's showing, I can love you and I can forgive you and still be righteous, still punish sin. Look at what it says. It says, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. And this last part's the key. So that he would be righteous and declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. I hope you see it there. It's only in the cross of Jesus that God's justice and God's mercy meet. Because that is where he shows his righteous, shows he is righteous by punishing sin, but he also shows his mercy by forgiving us, by declaring us innocent. And what do we need to do to accept that wonderful gift? So simple, isn't it? Believe. Trust. Have faith in Jesus. All those things, all those words mean the same thing. Trust in Jesus. And by his death, your sin is dealt with and you are declared righteous in God's sight. Sounds very mechanical in these verses, but it is the most wonderful news in the world. Because without what it says here in Romans chapter 3, we are still under God's wrath. But now we trust in Jesus and we can be declared innocent. Now I just want to pause at this point and I want to ask every person here, have you received that gift? Have you received that gift? One day, every one of us here is going to stand before God on the judgment day and have to give an account for our lives. And God has warned us, you have rejected me. You deserve my judgment. God has given us the warning. So what will you do on that day? What will you say to God to turn aside his just wrath? Will you try to point out all the good things you've done? You know, look at, look at how nice I've been. You know, look at my church attendance. Look at how I, I, I gave generously. Look, will you try to point God to the fact you didn't do anything too bad? 
didn't kill anyone. Well, you try to point to other people, so I'm not as bad as him over there, so sure you should let me in. You've got to have someone there. If you say any of those things, I fear for you because God will not be impressed. So no, when we stand before God, there is only one answer that will turn aside his judgment. There's only one answer that will deal with his wrath. There's only one propitiation that works, and that is the blood of Jesus. So when God says, why should I spare you rather than give you what you deserve? Why should I welcome you into my eternal kingdom? The only answer God wants to hear is, I don't deserve it, but Jesus died for me. That's all he wants to hear. I don't deserve it, but Jesus died for me. I trust in Jesus. And God will say to every person who says that, welcome. Welcome, you're my child. See, there is no more important question to ask than this question, do you trust in Jesus? And I would love you to answer that question tonight with a resounding yes. And I, if, if you are someone who's not yet made that step, come and talk to me afterwards, talk to someone you trust if you want to make that step today. And of course, if we do believe, like I hope everyone here, I pray you do, if we understand this, if you understand what Jesus has done for you, the implications are massive. That's why, but now, everything changed at, at, at this moment. The implications are huge. It changes our lives totally. It changes our aspirations totally. It, it changes our attitude to, to other people. It, it changes what we find important in life. It changes what you live for. It changes everything. And the rest of this book of Romans is going to unpack all the implications of what it's said here in, in Romans chapter 3. We're going to have a great time over the next few weeks. But I find it really interesting what the implication is that the Apostle Paul draws out first. This is our last heading for tonight. Where he says, because of this, there is no place for pride. Look at verse 27 with me. He says, where then is boasting, it is excluded. Now he's not talking about boasting in your sporting success or, or in your, your cooking skills. By all means, come and tell me how you won the bake-off at the hub or how you kicked a goal on Saturday. You know, you can boast about that all you want. I don't care. He's talking about boasting in front of God. That's what he's talking about. And by implication, comparing yourself to other people. Uh, if you understand that you bring nothing to God, then there is no place for any pride before God. He's talking to religious people here. He's talking to moral people. He's talking to churchgoers like us who think they're better than other people. See, it reminds me of the story Jesus told. I'm sure you know the story. And he said two men went to the temple to pray. And one man stood up in front of everyone. He prayed, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that sinner over there. I thank you that I'm so religious. I thank you that I'm righteous. I, I, I thank you that I'm generous. Then the sinner over there prayed and he just fell on his knees and he said, God have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, only one of those two men went home justified that day. Only one of those two men went home right with God. And it's not the one who thought he was going to. See, when you understand your true state before God, and when we, only, when we understand that we're only made right with him through what Jesus has done for us, all of our pride in our own spiritual achievement just burns away. All of our pride and our, our own moral achievement just burns away. We've got nothing to boast about. If you say to God, look at how much I gave away, God. Look at how I responded to Warden Rob's call. But you didn't trust in Jesus. God will say, so what? What are you boasting about? I gave it all to you anyway. 
If you say to God, look at what a moral person I was, look at how successful I've been, but you didn't trust in Jesus, God will say, so what? What what are you boasting about? You got nothing. You see, we learn something really important about faith here. Amazingly, in our sin, we Christians can sometimes even boast about our faith. We we can sort of think, yeah, I, I know I'm a sinner, but at least I trusted in Jesus. That makes me better than the people out there. No, faith is not your good work. In fact, faith is the opposite of achievement. You can't be proud of your faith because faith is just acknowledging that I'm helpless. Faith is just putting out our dirty little hands to receive God's incredible gift. You can't be proud of your faith. So what can we boast in? What can we boast in? To boast is what you talk about, what you delight in. What can we boast in? Boast in Jesus. It's that great line we sing in How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The Musos are thankfully going to sing this or lead us in this song after I'm finished. Look at the line where it says, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. That's, that's things about me. I'm not going to boast and say, look at me. No, what will I do? I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And really, there is your application for today. That's what I want you to walk out of here thinking about. You know how often at the end of the sermon we say, what should we do in response to God's word? Well, the rest of the book of Romans is going to spell out what it means for us to know this truth. But for now, the right response is just to bask in how wonderful Jesus is. That's the right response. The right response is just to believe, just trust in Jesus. The right response is just to praise God that he is both righteous and merciful. And if you were going to boast in anything, well, let's be people who boast in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture that in our hopelessness and helplessness shows us the answer. It shows us that things have changed because you've sent your Son into the world and that he is the sacrifice to turn aside our anger. So we pray your anger. So we pray for every person here that we would trust in Jesus, that we would not boast in our own achievements, that we would not compare ourselves to other people, but instead we would be people who recognise our sin but delight in the fact that Jesus has paid the price. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.